Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your kindness to gather us. Thank you for your kindness uh, to pursue us, to want us to know who you are, want us to know your plan in the world. And Father, thank you for how you are calling your people to participate with you in this plan of um, seeing your kingdom come in its fullness. So Father, would you be with us as we, as we look at, uh, gosh, uh, so much of your word tonight? And it's, uh, it's a lot. There's a lot of hard things, uh, your judgment, uh, but great promises. Lord, help us to navigate that and uh, to do it in a way that honors you. Pray that you would soften our hearts, open our ears, that we might uh, respond rightly, open our eyes that we might see you. And I pray, Lord, that you would transform our lives, that we would not uh, leave tonight being the same people that we are, but you would continue your good work in us um, that you have done in Christ Jesus. So, Lord, be with me. guide and guard my words, help me to know what to talk about and what not to talk about. And so, uh, Father, I pray that you would uh, glorify Jesus here in our minutes tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. So, a necklace in a jewelry drawer, Christmas lights, extension cord, uh, some things in our world just seem to get tangled up. Um, I don't know, probably this, the guys can't relate to this, but if you have a necklace, it's been tangled up in your jewelry door and you get it and it's a, you know, and it's, you're like, well, what do you do to try to unravel that mess? How did it happen? I don't know. Um, but you try to loosen here and it tightens somewhere else. It's a knotted mess and you could throw it away. Uh, you could throw that long extension cord away. You could, um, or you could dig in and say, okay, I'm really going to work that out. Uh, our world is a lot like that knotted necklace, a big knotted bundle of Christmas lights. Uh, our world needs justice. We want justice when we've been wronged, when your car gets backed into, when somebody steals your wallet, when your boss treats you unfairly. Uh, you want justice. We, and we rightly want justice. But when we see the parking ticket on our car or we forget to pay a bill or we forget to send a birthday card to someone where we really should have, uh, we don't want justice, we want mercy because our world needs mercy. You and I want mercy from the professor writing our biology exams, from the neighbor living next to us when we forget to take out our like carry your trash can back in or when we don't mow our lawn, um, from the friend that you owe money to but you aren't able to pay back yet. Um, And yet usually we as humans aren't as generous in extending mercy as we like to receive it. When we're writing the exam, when we're looking at an unmowed lawn, when we're waiting to be paid back, when we're being cut off as I just was in traffic like about a half an hour ago. Uh, I was definitely not as merciful as I would have been if, uh, or I wanted other people to be with me when I need to move over in a lane because I haven't planned well. Um, We've seen so far in our study of Israel's history that God has judged those who who have persisted in rejecting him. God has been merciful and kind to those who turn back to him. Uh, 
Tonight, we are looking at 39 chapters of Isaiah. Obviously, we're not going to look at all 39. Uh, We're doing broad strokes here. But a big theme is God's judgment. God's judgment. And you and I, uh, as we look at this uncomfortable, sobering subject, uh, I suggest that we need to process the solemn reality that God is not okay with the world's sin, brokenness, and rebellion. And he says that he will directly intervene as he sees fit, as he knows is right and just to judge this world. This is his world. And that's a truth that you and I must face. We need time to process that and think through his perfect justice and his perfect mercy. Those are truths that need to transform us. We can't remain the same when uh, we encounter God's perfect character that must transform us. So tonight, wherever you are, uh, my hope is that you and we together can take a step forward processing that. Um, We're not gonna do Isaiah 1 to 39 justice, um, but I hope that we can learn that God is committed to restoring his world. God is committed to restoring his world and we should trust him and wait well. We should trust him and wait, wait well. So my outline tonight, I have, I'm sorry for all the, it's just, it was too much. Um, what's the big message? I think Isaiah 39, God the king is coming to judge, reclaim, and restore his world. God the king is coming to judge, reclaim, and restore his world. And so tonight, my outline is just like two things. I know that looks like a big hot mess, but... Uh, patterns to look for as we're studying Isaiah. And there are three parts of those, person, place, and time. And then four principles on God's judgment. So patterns to look for and four principles on God's judgment. Um, Over on the side, I've tried to outline Isaiah 1 to 39. Um, It is a lot like a casserole. that has, you know, everything's been baked together, right? And if you don't like onions or peas or cilantro, you can try to pick some of those things out. But the flavor of the cilantro is a bit of everything, right? And so if you like that hot dog, right, that's awesome. But if you don't, it's gonna be uncomfortable and maybe soapy. Um, And so that's like, Isaiah is not linear, and um, it does have a narrative frame. Uh, I suggest to you verse, or chapter seven to eight, the Christ in Jerusalem, and it f- ends with the crisis in Jerusalem to chapters 39, or 36 to 39. So there is a frame, uh, but it's, it's, there's a lot of mixture. And so we have to take it all in. And just like a casserole, there are probably, or a stew, like there are probably parts that you like more than you like other parts. Um, and I can certainly say that about Isaiah for myself. There are parts that I, I like to read. It's really fun. And there are parts that I don't because they're very uncomfortable. And so I encourage us, encourage you, encourage me, encourage us together to just sit in that and try to take it all in. Um, and okay, so let's, let's get grounded. Uh, the patterns to look for. So how do you read Isaiah? Um, open up your Bibles to Isaiah. And I, 
we I'm sorry, we're gonna be flipping all around. So it's great if you prefer to have an electronic Bible, but I would really, really, really recommend that you also get a pew Bible out. And so you can have it open and like maybe in different parts and move kind of quickly. Isaiah is sort of in the middle of the Bible. If you just open it up, um, your table of contents can help you find it. Um, and if that's you and you're just looking to find Isaiah, I'm sorry, this is going to be a whole lot. Just hang in there. It'll be, hang in there. It'll be okay. Right. Um, probably most of us don't know Isaiah very well. So, um, okay. Uh, where do you start? What are, how do you read Isaiah? Okay. So I suggest three, there are three patterns that we can, that can help us. And one of them is person. And last week we thought a lot about Isaiah six. We thought about God, the King, and he's the most important person in Isaiah. So when you get lost, not if, but when you get lost, come back to that. God is a King. This is his world. And he is on his throne Um, the Lord is a king is an overarching metaphor. And we see in chapter six, like, okay, what kind of king is he? Um, He's holy and exalted, uh, verse one, high and lifted up. He's so uncontainable that his robe, the hem of his robe can't even be contained by the temple. Like that's how uncontainable he is. He is holy he demands absolute loyalty. He is just, but he's also sin forgiving. We see that in the, in the transition that happens with Isaiah's confession of sin and then how the seraphim send out, the seraph sends out the coal and atones for that. Um, that's the kind of king that we have. Uh, the Lord is a kind of king who delegates because in the ancient Near East, like that was how the political landscape was. There were lots of kings and they weren't all peers. So there would be over kings and under kings. And there would be covenant relationships between powerful kings and less powerful kings. And so there would be a a loyalty that was expressed from a lesser king, an under king to a greater king. And then in that covenant relationship, the over king, which I suggest to you here is the Lord, he has a commitment to protect, to uphold justice and righteousness in his kingdom uh, because he's really delegating responsibility. And I, I suggest to you the Lord as a king that's presented for us in Isaiah, uh, his default posture is that of blessing. His hands are out to bless. And it's important to think about, especially as we are going through these chapters, 1 to 39, which is a lesson, um, a lot, has a lot about God's judgment, um, the state of equilibrium that the Lord is going to have his kingdom return to is one of blessing. It's one of flourishing. That's his default position. And so he is the over king and he delegates and he's anointed a Davidic king, an heir of the king of David to be his under king, to be the conduit of his blessing to Judah, the Southern country, to Israel, but ultimately not just to them, but to be a conduit of blessing to the whole world. And uh, Isaiah has many promises and hopefully you'll get to read some tonight and discuss them in, their, in your group of a coming faithful anointed king 
who will deliver and bless. And in the context of the scriptures, that is not just some random king that God's going to pick. It is the Davidic heir. It is an heir of the King David and uh, will God will call his own, this heir, his own son, 2 Samuel 7, 14. You can read about that. Um, and those promises are partially fulfilled. We've seen in David faithful heirs like Hezekiah and Josiah, but uh, fully fulfilled where we are in redemptive history. We can see those promises are fully, fully fulfilled in our Lord Jesus Christ, who is fully human and in his humanness is an heir, the, king, the heir of King David, and he's also fully divine. So he's not only called God's son, but he actually is God's son from eternity past. He's fully human and fully divine. Okay, so God is uh, not only a king of blessing, he is also a king of justice. And so if God's people, indeed, if David's kingly heir reject God as over king. God is going to delegate other kings. He's going to raise up other kings to judge and to discipline his people, that king. And so we'll see that definitely. We see that uh, in chapter seven, especially the Davidic king is Ahaz, who is a wicked king. He is an heir of David. And he's an ancestor, humanly speaking, of Jesus. And uh, yet he does not trust in the Lord. And so there's judgment coming. And then we see at the end, there's King Hezekiah, who is a good and faithful king, but he's not perfect. And we can see that he does incline towards selfishness. He does incline toward disloyalty to the Lord. Um, He's not wholly wholehearted. Okay, so um, Isaiah is a message from this king of kings. So that's the person, the king of kings, um, to his people, but ultimately to the whole world. He's, it's the story of the king of kings persevering to reclaim his kingdom, to cleanse and restore his kingdom so that it will reflect his glorious character. And so another pattern to look for is place. Um, if you can see, like, if you look back at, uh, Isaiah 1, 1, um, Jerusalem is a big deal. The vision concerning Judah and Jerusalem that Isaiah, son of Amos, saw during the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, all of whom would have been, their capital city was Jerusalem. And uh, that is where Solomon built the palace temple for the Lord. In uh, 1 Kings 8, that's consecrated. 1 Kings 9, the Lord accepts that palace temple. So that is his, even though the Lord is a king over the whole earth, his symbolic palace temple is in Jerusalem. And so his reign goes out from Jerusalem. And so there's a going outness from Jerusalem to Samaria, to the ends of the earth, People have studied Acts 1-8 may recognize that pattern that Jesus sends out his spirit-filled witnesses from Jerusalem to Samaria, which is the northern kingdom or the region where that was, and to the ends of the earth. And so there is that sense that the Davidic king enthroned in Jerusalem has blessing that goes out to the whole earth. He also has judgment <laughs> that goes out to the whole earth. 
in that direction. Um, the foreign nations, you know, Assyria, Babylon, Edom, there's a big section on the judgment of nations, chapters 13 to 23. They will be judged by this Lord because um, they haven't been loyal to God the King. But who's going to be judged first? God's own people. They should be the most loyal. They know him the best. And yet, they have been treacherous. They've been disloyal to him. And we'll, we'll get into that in just a little bit. Um, and so there is a sense of Jerusalem. The crisis starts in Jerusalem, but we actually, as we go into chapter eight, we realize, oh, it is judgment coming on Samaria and Aram, which is a neighbor to the north. And then we see the judgment coming on Assyria. So there is that progression. And then there's, there is another direction of going in. We see in the fullness of God's kingdom, when it's fully restored and a place of blessing, that all the peoples are going to come into Jerusalem. So there's going to be a moving out. God's word and God's law will be going out. His glory goes out. But there's also a coming inness of it too. That people, when Israel, when Jerusalem is restored in the way that it should be restored in God's vision, then the whole nation, all the world, all, every nation will come in and worship there. And we see that, like, how does that work in the New Testament? I don't have a good answer to that. Other than I will say, Revelation does have, at the very end of all things, Revelation 21 uses that same imagery. The new Jerusalem is coming down, the new heaven and the earth. And that life is flowing out from that, that place, new Jerusalem. So Jerusalem is an epicenter. It remains an epicenter. Jesus taught there. He worshiped there. He was, he was, he suffered, he died and he buried and he was resurrected there. The Pentecost happened in Jerusalem. Jerusalem is a hot, like important deal in, uh, in the scriptures. And I suggest it is a big deal in, uh, in Isaiah. So think about when you get lost, when, when, not if, uh, think about the person, who's the king, who are the people in relationship to him? What's the place and what is their relationship to Jerusalem? And what should they be doing instead of that? And so third pattern um, is time. Uh, there's a now, a next, and then. And so if you look at, um, open your Bible to, uh, let's do uh, chapter one, uh, starting with 21. And this specifically talks about Jerusalem. Um, See how the faithful city has become a harlot. She was once full of justice and righteousness, used to dwell in her. So that was, I guess there's a little bit of the past there. But now, murderers, your silver has become dross. Your choice wine is diluted with water. Your rulers are rebels, companions of thieves. They all love bribes and chase after gifts. They do not defend the cause of the fatherless. The widow's case does not come before them. So, there's a now, there's a now part in Isaiah. There are real problems, real now in the historic time of uh, Isaiah, not our now. Um, Therefore, the Lord, the Lord Almighty of Israel will declare, ah, I will get relief from my foes and avenge myself on my enemies. Wow, isn't that a shock? Like Judah wouldn't necessarily think of her as herself as God's enemy, but there is a uh, you can see there's God's plan. He's, now there's a next 
What is God going to do? He will get relief from his foes. He will avenge himself on his enemies. I will turn my hand against you. I will thoroughly purge away your dross and remove all your impurities. I will restore your judges as in days of old, your counselors as in the beginning. Afterward, you will be called the city of righteousness, the faithful city. So there's a, do you see there? There's a, there's a, a present problem. There's a next kind of action, how the Lord's going to intervene. And then there will be a result. And that's what the Lord is going for, the purpose, the so that. So a now, a then, a next. So um, that is, uh, those are three patterns to look for. All right? <laughs> how are we doing? Okay, let's go uh, four principles of... Um, Four principles of judgment. Uh, I guess I should just say too, like uh, Isaiah can be split in two broad parts. So here we are in one chapters one to thirty nine, which has been called, I think, rightly, the book of judgment, and in forty to sixty six, it's called the you know the book of comfort or deliverance. And we're going to be doing that. We're going to be studying that in the next two weeks. So uh, of course, this is overly simplistic. And in the Bible, judgment and deliverance almost always, if not always, go together. You can't separate them. It's like a casserole. Um, Isaiah is nonlinear and poetic, but if we think of the strongest themes, judgment comes first, which is why we're sort of sitting in that uncomfortable space tonight, and then deliverance for the repentant, and then we'll have two weeks to focus on that in chapters 40 and 66. So um, I will say the BSF notes do trace the themes of, uh, important themes of in 1 to 39, they focus more on the fulfillment of Isaiah's promises in the Lord Jesus Christ. So that is really good stuff. Um, and please read those. But I, what we're doing tonight or what I'm trying to do is help to take a complementary tack to uh, help us to think about judgment, that, um, that hard theme in Isaiah 1 to 39. Um, okay, so uh, four points. Um, God's judgment is just. God's judgment is just. Um, this is to say that God always does what is right. So let's take example of that and look at chapter five. So open your text to Isaiah 5. Um, so in one through seven, Isaiah is singing a song of lament over rebellious, ungrateful Israel. Um, God lovingly and faithfully planted and tended Israel as a vineyard and expected it to yield good, good fruit. But despite God's loving care, Israel has only yielded rotten fruit or yucky fruit, like the wild grapes, which are really tiny and small. Um, so verses one to seven, I will sing for the one I love a song about his vineyard. My loved one had a vineyard on a fertile hillside. He dug it up and cleared it of stones and planted it with choicest vines. He built a watchtower in it and cut out a wine press as well. Then he looked for a crop of good grapes, but it yielded only bad fruit. Now you dwellers in Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard, what more could have been done for my vineyard than what I have done for it? When I look for good grapes, why did it only yield bad? Now I will tell you what I'm going to do to my vineyard. 
I will take away its hedge and it will be destroyed. I will break down its wall and it will be trampled. I will make it a wasteland, neither pruned nor cultivated, and briars and thorns will grow there. I will command the clouds not to rain on it. The vineyard of the Lord Almighty is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are the garden of his delight. And he looked for justice, but saw bloodshed, for righteousness, but heard cries of distress. So God, in this image, God is the owner. He's the vineyard master. He's, he declares he has the right to evaluate and act for what is his. And so 100% of the time, God knows everything. He is the one who sees hearts and minds. He knows everything that happens in secret and in public. And unlike our human courts, where we try to uncover the truth of what happened in a situation, God already knows. And so God hears every voice crying out due to injustice or violence. He sees every selfish act. He knows every selfish wrong thought. God is the owner. And so he declares what is wrong, verses 8 to 23. God pronounces six specific points of woe or judgment against Israel. Um, And this is examples of bad fruit. Woe to you who add house to house and join field to field till no space is left and you live alone in the land. That seems to be kind of a greediness um, and uh, ignoring the poor. Verse nine, the Lord Almighty has declared in my hearing, surely the great houses will become desolate. The fine mansions left without occupants, a tenured vineyard will produce only a bath of wine, a homer of seed, only an Aphoth of grain. Woe to those who rise early in the morning, who run late after their drinks, who stay up late at night till they are inflamed with wine. They have harps and lyres at their banquets, tambourines and flutes and wine. They have no regard for the deeds of the Lord, no respect for the work of his hands. Therefore, my people will go into exile for lack of understanding. Their men of rank will die of hunger. Their masses will be parched with thirst. Therefore, the grave enlarges its appetite and opens its mouth without limits. Into it will descend their nobles and masses with all their brawlers and revelers. So man will be brought low and mankind humbled, the eyes of the arrogant humbled. But the Lord Almighty will be exalted by his justice and the Lord God will show himself holy by his righteousness. Then sheep will graze as in their own pasture. Lambs will feed among the ruins of the rich. Woe to those who draw sin along with cords of deceit and wickedness as with cart ropes. To those who say, let God hurry. Let him hasten his work so we may see it. Let it approach. Let the plan of the Holy One of Israel come so we may know it. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and clever in their own sight. Woe to those who are heroes at drinking wine and champions at mixing drinks, who acquit the guilty for a bribe, but deny justice to the innocent. So you can see in that, of course, it's intermingled. Did you hear the casserole in there? There was a judgment that was coming. There was the, the glimpse of the restoration and the fullness when the lambs and the sheep would be able to graze um, without predator. 
But uh, the overwhelming theme is that Israel has turned her back on the Lord and his purpose. And instead they're exalting themselves and living their own beautiful, fun life. Um, Rather than being a holy nation of blessing to the world, they are living selfishly, using God's blessings for their own selfish pursuits. That is a violation. That is disloyalty to the Lord because he is the owner and he had appointed them to be a nation of priests, a priestly nation, to live according to his laws and on his purposes and not set up their own Uh, kingdoms and pleasures for themselves. Um, And so they're exalting themselves, uh, ignoring their fellow Israelites, even rejecting God's word and his warnings. And so we can see in verses 24 to 30, God's harvest of judgment is just and it's due for such treachery. God asserts his right to act and deal with the problem in his vineyard. Um, and God, Israel, uh, sorry, Isaiah warns God's wrath is going to burn against Israel and her deliberate sin. God will summon Israel's enemies to deliver judgment at his command. So verses 24 to 30, therefore, as tongues of fire lick up straw, as grass, dry grass sinks down in the flames, so their roots will decay and their flowers blow away by dust. For they have rejected the law of the Lord Almighty and spurned the word of the Holy One of Israel. Therefore, the Lord's anger burns against his people. His hand is raised and he strikes them down. The mountains shake and the dead bodies are like refuge in the streets. Yet for all this, his anger is not turned away. His hand is still upraised. He lifts up a banner for distant nations. He whistles for those at the end of the earth. Here they come speedily and swiftly. Not one of them grows tired or stumbles. Not one of them slumbers or sleeps. Not a belt is loosened at the waist. Not a sandal thong is broken. Their arrows are sharp. All their bows are strung. Their horses' hooves seem like flint. Their chariot wheels like whirlwind. Their roar is like that of the lion. They roar like young lions. They growl as, growl as they seize their prey, which is Israel, and carry it off with no one to rescue. In that day, they will roar over it like the roaring of the sea. And as and if one looks at the land, he will see darkness and distress. Even the light will be darkened by the clouds. So that is sober, my friends. Somber. Uh, God is judgment is terrible. Not, I'm not saying bad, terrible, but it is awful. We should regard it with awe. We should have terror for it. Or like, I mean, it is, it is horrid, um, horrible, even though it is just. And that, um, this hinges completely on the fact of him being the owner Jerusalem is his capital city. Judah and Israel are his people. The world belongs to him. Um, he declares in 34 2. Um, if there is injustice in his city, in his country, in his world, who else is going to come in? He is the one only who can rescue and save. And so God is not eager to judge. He gives many, many warnings, but he will not let rebellion pollute and corrupt his kingdom forever. It, his kingdom should be 
full of goodness and righteousness and kindness and justice. And that is what it will be because God is coming to reclaim. So uh, we can read 16, 4 to 5, um, 4 B, I guess. This is in the uh, Oracle against Moab. Um, the oppressor will come to an end. The destruction will cease. The aggressor will vanish from the land. In love, a throne will be established. In faithfulness, a man will sit on it, one from the house of David, one who in judging seeks justice and speaks the, speeds the cause of righteousness. So um, God's judgment is just. Um, how much... Uh, how, how does this sit with your heart? God cannot rest until every wrong is made right. Uh, life belongs to him. It is his to give. It is his to take. Were there children in Jerusalem, in Judah, in Edom? Undoubtedly. Was it right for God to judge all the people and take their lives? Sometimes we don't understand, but our response to God's justice matters. We can see that, and even Isaiah models for it, uh, us in that Isaiah twenty four sixteen, he is um, in the middle of that. He's talking about the, the judgment, not just the temporal that's coming in his time, but even further, like the final judgment. And he says, I waste away, I waste away, woe to me. It seems that judgment is tearing him apart. And yet, um, the Lord does something in him and transforms him so that he can agree with God's judgment. He can say it is just. We look at the praise that he has in 25, one to two. Oh Lord, you are my God. I will exalt you and praise your name. And for in perfect faithfulness, you have done marvelous things, things planned long ago. Then you and I are not our own. We belong just like Judah and Jerusalem belong to him. That has not changed even though we think we live in a democracy, and of course we do, and I, I appreciate democracy, it's very nice, but ultimately that is under the Lord's kingship, and we are accountable to him. Um, God intervenes in justice to deliver and judge, and for those of us who follow Jesus, we are twice his. Peter tells us in First Peter um, that First Peter 18 and 19, that we were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from our feudal way of life inherited from our forefathers, but with precious blood as of a lamb unblenished and spotless, the blood of Christ. So we are twice his. Will he not come and defend? He, he wants us to be wholehearted for him and he will, um, he will pursue us. So, okay, that's the first principle. Second one, I'll go faster through these, I promise. Okay, sorry about that. Um, God's judgment is going somewhere. We've seen that uh, a little bit, uh, but he judges for purposeful necessity, not for vindictiveness. Um, he could have abandoned his creation when we rebelled against him. He didn't, he plushed, pressed in. I wonder uh, if you have ever had anything flood. Um, we had water in our, our, we've had water in our basement from, you know, I mean, we live in St. Louis, so you're going to get water in your basement, right? Um, and so like the last time that that happens, you know, it's very sad and disappointing because I keep things in the basement that I think I'm going to want and think I'm going to need. Um, but you know, after the water comes in and the mud and yuckiness, like you just have to pitch it. That's what I do. But if you can imagine, um, 
the grossest, most moldy, muddy, maggoty outfit or sofa or box of pictures, can you imagine to be the type of person who would say, no, I want this. I'm gonna work to cleanse it, to make it right. And that, dear friends, is probably not even like thinking about the holiness of God and the, and the unholiness of us and our rebellion. Like he has pressed in so far. He wants that yucky old sofa. He thinks that that's a really great sofa. Um, obviously the metaphor breaks down, uh, but God's purpose and judgment is not annihilation. Um, it's restoration. And so we're going to see that throughout Isaiah is he's going to, Isaiah is going to keep putting us in this casserole. We're going to see more of his blessing and more of God's, the fullness of his kingdom, what he wants, purity, restoration, flourishing. And so, um, the promised outcome of of judgment is human flourishing and particularly it's under the kingdom of the one we now recognize as the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we can uh, just look and see that a little bit. And I, I, it's, he's all over in Isaiah, but um, Isaiah 11, one to five, a shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse so that Jesse is David's father from his roots, a branch will bear fruit the spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and of power, the spirit of knowledge and fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears, but with righteousness, he will judge the needy. With justice, he will give decisions for the poor He will of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. With the breath of his lips will slay the wicked. Righteousness will be his belt and faithfulness the sash around his waist. And look at what's going to happen, the kind of kingdom that this is going to be. Um, the wolf will live with the lamb, the leopard with, uh, will lie down with the goat, the calf and the lion, the yearling together, and a little child will lead them. Um, verse 9, they will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain. Uh, that would be, again, poetically imaging the uh, Mount Zion where uh, Jerusalem is, um, for the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as waters cover the sea. That is the direction that God is taking history. And that is the purpose for all of his judgment. Uh, I think that we can, a principle we can take away is that God can be trusted to make it right. God can be trusted to make it right. Um, when you go to the dentist, sometimes things aren't right. I'm actually dreading the next time I go to the dentist. Um, and I don't care who you are, but you're not in a position to fix what is in your own mouth. Um, even if you know what's wrong, you need someone else's skill and light. Um, sometimes the process of making whatever is wrong right in your mouth hurts and it's necessary. Um, the right place to be is in the dental chair with your mouth open, not resisting. What isn't right in your life? Do you have a friend who won't talk to you? A boss asking you to do things that you know God doesn't think are right? A sister who's turned her back on the Lord? Maybe you're angry with God about cancer or the kind of things that are happening in our crazy world. What does it look like for you to trust that God is working, that he will make it right and to let him make decisions that you don't have all the wisdom and light to make? Um, God acts in history and we encounter his character and we should leave transformed. Um, 
Okay, I'll just do this last principle, I think. Um, God's judgment is universal, but offers only two outcomes. And so Isaiah images two kinds of judgment. There's judgment on the unrepentant who stubbornly refuse to yield to God's over kingship. And there's judgment on the repentant, uh, a remnant who hears the Lord's warning, sees his acts and turns back to the Lord. And this kind of judgment is a discipline, a refining fire to purify our impurities. Judgment on the stubbornly unrepentant so the first kind, it will be universal. Uh, you can look at Isaiah 24, 2. It will result in their destruction, uh, 14, 22 and 23. And when it is finally sent, when God's long suffering and patience have been exhausted, his judgment will be inescapable. And it is awful. Um, we should regard it with awe and a tear in our eye. Um, 14, 24 to 27 images that. And uh, the, in Isaiah, it has this thing with time. So there's a, a near future and a far future. And so some of these things, like uh, Assyria coming in and uh, destroying Israel, uh, the northern kingdom, and Babylon coming, coming in, uh, or that's imaged in chapter 39, and um, taking Jerusalem into exile, that these are, these are temporal judgments. These do not equal God's eternal judgment, his final judgment. And yet um, it should help us to uh, understand the seriousness, how serious God is about sin, and so that we would turn back to him. Um, the judgment on the repentant, so that's the other kind, will be, the one that's disciplined, will be effective. It is God's grace. We don't deserve to have a remnant or be in it. Um, you can look at verse 1, 9. Um, it is purifying, one twenty-five and 26. It is curative, and uh, 10, 20. Uh, Isaiah 26 in particular is one of the, my favorite chapters in the whole Bible. Um, no more will be, we be disloyal. A day is coming, friends, that if you are in Christ Jesus, he's gonna complete the work that he's begun in you, and you will not have any part of your heart that rejects him, any selfish thought, any worship that is unhindered, any sin that entangles you every single day, those things are temporary. And so our discipline that we get, that kind of judgment that um, is temporary and it works like by the, you know, and we know now from where we are in, in uh, redemptive history that that is through the blood of Jesus Christ. That is accomplished through the spirit. Um, and it's his work in us, even though he calls us to cooperate it with it. Um, okay. Uh, so the combination of these two judgments will yield the consummation of God's righteous kingdom. And these are the only two paths that come out. If you look at chapter one, uh, verses 19 and 20, There's only two ways out of God's judgment. If you are willing and obedient, you will eat the best from the land. But if you resist and rebel, you will be devoured by the sword. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. And of course, that was temporal, uh, speaking what it was, uh, at historic and real judgment for uh, Judah, but it prefigures the final judgment um, that we have in the two paths that particularly Jesus talks about. Okay, um, 
I have talked long enough and you guys need to go discuss this in your group. So um, thank you for your grace. Uh, Receiving God's mercy and his justice must change us. Um, It needs uh, to position us to wait well and be about our king's business, not in executing the divine kind of judgment on people. That is not who God calls us to be, but rather to show mercy, uh, to love justice and to walk humbly with our God and wait well for him. So let's pray and you guys can go up. Lord, thank you for uh, your kindness. Please be working in our hearts. Uh, Help us to be uh, more trusting of you, more loving of you. Help us to know your son, the Lord Jesus Christ in a fuller way and uh, to walk cooperatively in the places where you have us. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, friends.